Good morning. I got my mask tangled in the uh, microphone there, so my ear does triple duty. I got my glasses, and then I got the microphone, and then I got the mask, and I go start pulling on things, and everything comes apart on me. All right. Well, let me add my word of welcome to those of you who are here. Do again be in prayer for those who are away for the spring break trip, for Joseph and Ted and their families and all those who are with them. We really, really are so grateful for this opportunity for them to share their faith and to encourage the workers, and we just pray for the Lord's blessing upon this ministry. If you're a visitor here, you're more than welcome to join us at 1115 for the intro to UBC class. It'll be right across the breezeway, first door on the right inside the white building there, and uh, we'll be going through some of the various aspects of our church. We'd love to have you, and uh, let me just give you a little bit of preview about what's coming in the next couple of weeks. As you know, we are coming into our Easter season, and it really is, I think, just about my favorite time of year, and I love preaching during this season, and it's very, very rare for me to even give up any preaching during this season, but I was talking to John earlier, and I said, you know, John, you've preached a lot here, but you probably need some opportunities to preach on some of these um, special days, and so I didn't give up Easter, all right? I'm still pretty selfish when it comes to Easter preaching. Uh, but Brother John's going to be preaching next week and going to be bringing us a sermon focus on the cross. Next week, of course, is the day that we celebrate uh, Palm Sunday and Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, followed by his death on the cross for our sins. And so John is going to be bringing our attention to that matter. And then the following week, we'll celebrate Easter together. Really, really looking forward to that. We will have a 930 um, communion service as we've done in the past and it'll be a briefer service we'll all come in here easter morning celebrate communion together and really reflect on the cross reflect on the passion of christ and then we're going to break and i think we're going to go outside have a little food possibly we're still kind of watching all the coronavirus numbers and so forth but we hopefully will do something in between and then we'll have an extended uh, easter morning service at 10:45. we will not have a regular 11:15 classes We'll have a 1045 Easter service and really get our attention focused on the resurrection of Christ. And think back to this time last year, we were all meeting online. And Easter, at least for me, was, I hate to say it, but it was a very sad Sunday for me. Um, It was a great Sunday because it's Easter, but then again, we were all meeting online. And I'd come down here on a Friday morning and I pre-recorded a sermon, I don't know if you recall that. We posted that on the web, and we all sat at home, and it was raining that Sunday, pouring down rain, and we had an Easter service, everybody sitting at home and not communicating with each other. And uh, when I preached online, and I just, I couldn't watch it. My family would go up in the bedroom, and they'd watch, they'd watch the Sunday morning service, and I'd go watch somebody else's service, you know. And my family said, well, it's Easter, you have to spend Easter with us, Dad. So I actually had to watch myself preach on Easter Sunday, and it made it really, really a bad Sunday for me. So <laughs> we are so, so glad to be back together again this year. All right, so we're looking forward to Easter. All right, would you turn to Romans chapter 15, Romans chapter 15, and we will continue our work to this glorious epistle that Paul penned to the Roman church. Romans chapter 15. Paul actually concluded his doctrinal and applicational section of the epistle back in verse 13. 
Beginning with verse 14, then Paul offers several personal remarks about his own ministry, a ministry that took him from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. Paul also explained his desire to travel west and visit the Roman church, and further, his ambition to preach the gospel further west in Spain. This is the westernmost region of the Roman Empire. And as we discovered last week, Paul was a restless spirit, always moving on. He was a church planner. He wanted to go to new territory, and it really was his ambition to go further west. However, before traveling west, Paul needed to return east all the way back to Jerusalem with a Gentile offering to aid the impoverished church, the Jewish church back in Jerusalem. So that's the context. And now in Romans 15, verses 30 through 33, Paul will pen three prayer requests. And these four verses are immensely important for two reasons. First of all, they tell us what kinds of requests an apostle made. In fact, an apostle made under inspiration. One of our five priorities here at UBC is the matter of prayer. And we have devoted our Wednesday evenings toward helping us pray more scripturally. We've been doing that all year. Well, would you like to pray like an apostle prayed? Well, what you do is you look at the apostle's prayer and you pray the way he prayed. This is a very important request, a very important prayer for us. The second reason these verses are so important is simply this. We have a historical record in the book of Acts telling us precisely how God answered these prayers, these requests that he made. So wouldn't you like to know how God answers prayer? Does God give Paul exactly what he requests? Does God give you exactly what you request? We will discover the answer today. All right, so let's read Paul's prayer appeal, appeal beginning in verse 30. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now, can you pick out Paul's three requests? First, Paul says, pray that I may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea. That's in verse 31. I need to be delivered from unbelievers. Would you pray to that end? Secondly, Paul says, pray that my service will be accepted by the saints in Jerusalem. And if those those two things come true, then thirdly, in verse 32, here's Paul's great ambition 
Pray that God will allow Paul to make a joyful visit to Rome. Those are three things that Paul really desires. And friends, these are very serious requests. As we investigate the events surrounding these requests, we can also learn a great deal about how God answers prayer. Now, before exploring the larger historical context, let me just make a few observations about these verses. First of all, in verse 30, we have a framework for prayer. And let's observe three things. First of all, prayer is a lot of work. It's a lot of work. We've been working at it every Wednesday night now. We've got a long way to go. Notice the term appeal. The term appeal indicates that Christians have to be urged to pray. Prayer does not happen naturally. You know that we have any number of excuses for not praying. Maybe it's time just once again to just really appeal to our whole church to take our Wednesday evening prayer time very seriously. I know this last week a lot of us were sick. My whole family was out sick. I understand them. But the fact is, the early church gathered multiple times throughout the week for prayer. And I just need to appeal to us from time to time to really make this an urgent, an urgent matter that we come together for prayer. Secondly, notice also that prayer is a church's corporate responsibility. Locate the words to strive together in verse 30. To strive together. And let me give you the Greek term. Sunagonizomai. That's the Greek term translated to, cut, to strive together. And it means to strive together. Surprise, surprise. It means to contend alongside with. You're in a battle and you're fighting side by side with someone else. You're contending together. It means to engage in conflict with. There's a battle idea here. I'm engaging in conflict. I'm striving together, but I'm not alone. I've got somebody else striving together, fighting together with me. Now that term, Sunogonismi is also very closely related to the term synagogue, from which we get our word synagogue. You've heard the term synagogue, no doubt. A synagogue was a place where the Jews gathered together for corporate prayer. It refers to coming together. We pray when we come together. So Paul's call for corporate engagement here means that we are supposed to collectively strive together in prayer. And again, if you can't join us on Wednesday night, feel free to log into the Zoom. And we really are trying to do a better job of praying with those who are on Zoom. And I had that experience last week of navigating the Zoom while I was homesick, and it seems to work pretty well. All right, so feel free to join us by Zoom also if you just can't be here. But when the church comes together, we can and should all right, have, a, have a corporate sense of an engagement. That we are in this together because we desire the same things to happen. 
Now, when you and I think about the unity of the church, probably the first thing that comes to mind is doctrinal unity, right? We think, okay, the doctrinal unity of the church. We all believe the same thing. We practice the same thing, all right? But Paul here speaks of a unity in prayer. We are united in prayer because we desire to see the same things happen out there in the world. We have the same ambitions about what's really supposed to happen in our society all around us. And just as we all contribute to funds to support our missionaries, so we should equally contribute our time in prayer to support those same missionaries because we want the same thing to happen in the world, right? We want those missionaries to be successful in proclaiming the gospel. We have a common goal of reaching internationals through the international ministry. So that means we should be united together. Everybody's thinking the same way about this. Hey, we all need to be praying for the advance of Christ's kingdom with the international ministry. We have a common goal of seeing our children come to know Christ. So we all strive together. I had one brother in our church text me. He said, I'm praying for your boys. Thank you. It's a lot of work raising boys, right? Strive together. Strive together. Feel free to pray for my kids and I'll pray for your kids. All right? We desire that our Sunday school teachers really be of the same mind with us. We pray for them so that when they instruct our kids, they really are used of the Lord. So, again, this is a way that the church is really united. It's not just that we all show up on Sunday morning. It's not just that we all put money in the offering plate together. It's that we really do pray about the same things because we want the same things to actually happen in the world. So again, let's be extremely mindful of our prayer time together. And then thirdly, just notice this, that Paul indicates that Jesus and the Spirit unite us in prayer. In verse 30, we pray by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. We have two members of the Trinity there uniting us together in prayer. We pray for the same things because we are united by the same Holy Spirit living within all of us. And we are all on the same family of Jesus Christ. We pray in a very similar way. So when we come together for prayer, what exactly do we pray for? Well, again, we've been looking at all the various prayers of the Bible, all right? But in this case, let's look at what Paul says in Romans 15. In verse 31, Paul identifies the first of three requests. Pray that Paul may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea. Now, Paul writes from Corinth, and he plans to return back to Jerusalem. And of course, Jerusalem is located in Judea. This is a region that has proven very hostile to the gospel. Jesus actually spent the majority of his ministry up north in Galilee, where he was better received. In fact, when Jesus learned early in his ministry that John the Baptist had been arrested in Judea, we read that he immediately retreated out of Judea and went north to the hills of Galilee. And of course, John the Baptist himself was martyred down there in Judea. Judea also was where Jesus received a cold reception as he rode into Jerusalem on his donkey. This is what we'll celebrate next week. 
It was the Passover Galilean crowds that celebrated his approach with their waving palm branches and their cloaks were on the road before him. Those are the Galilean pilgrims who ushered him up to the city gates. But Jerusalem itself and Judea was largely hostile to Jesus. And of course, this is where Jesus ultimately was crucified in the heart of Jerusalem and the heart of Judea. And Judea also was ground zero in the early persecution of the church, which Paul himself inaugurated. And Judea was the site of the martyrdom of James, the brother of John. And James was one of the great pillars, one of the great apostles in the early church. And here also was the place where Peter himself was arrested. Luke records... Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. That was in Judea. So if neither James nor Peter were spared, Paul had no reason to assume that he was somehow immune to persecution. This is a very serious prayer request. Now, we often think of Paul as sort of invincible, as sort of fearless in the face of opposition, friends. That is not the Paul of the New Testament. What did Paul tell the Corinthians concerning his second missionary journey? Here's what he wrote. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and, get this, much trembling. That's how I came to you. I came to you and I was shaking. When is the last time you thought of Paul as fearful and visibly just shaking? Shaking in his body. Well, the month before he came to Corinth, he suffered a savage mob beating back in Philippi. And he had no reason to assume the same fate would not befall him in Jerusalem. In fact, when he did go to Jerusalem, he was beaten Paul knew that he might very well receive a violent reception. In fact, on his journey back to Jerusalem, Paul stopped at Caesarea. And he stopped in at the home of a man named Philip, Philip the Evangelist. And there he was warned by a man named Agabus that he would be arrested. And Paul acknowledged in Acts 21.13, For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die, where? In Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord Jesus. So that is all in Paul's mind when he writes to the Romans. I've got to go back to Jerusalem, and I know that I may be persecuted, imprisoned, and I may lose my life. So would you please pray for me? Pray that I will be delivered from unbelievers in Judea. A very serious request. Now, secondly, in verse 31, Paul says, would you pray that my service will be accepted by the saints in Jerusalem? The reference to Paul's service was doubtless a reference to the offering that he was bringing. Verse 26 tells us that Paul had collected an offering from Macedonia and Achaia, And he was now delivering that offering back to Jerusalem to alleviate the needs of the suffering Jewish Christians there. 
Well, why would it be difficult for those Jewish Christians to accept an offering? Well, on the one hand, it might be difficult to be on the receiving end of charity. None of us like to admit that we need a little charity, we need a little bit of help. We like to be the one giving out rather than taking in. It's a humbling thing to have to take charity from somebody else. That's probably part of the difficulty. But there's probably more to it. Paul is likely referring to the ongoing issue that erupted in Jerusalem over the inclusion of the Gentile believers. As we know from the book of Acts, there were many Jewish Christians who were very, very hesitant about all these Gentiles coming into the church. In fact, you had a whole church council in Acts 15 that had to deal with that matter. And Peter himself, as you know from Galatians, was guilty of disassembling with the Gentile Christians when the Judaizers came along and said, you know, what are you doing here, Peter? Well, then imagine how humbling it would have been for Jewish Christians not only to receive this influx of Gentiles into the church, but to admit that they need, they have become the object of Gentile charity, that we need their help. Paul is actually very sensitive about cross-cultural application of the gospel. When the Gentiles embrace the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, will the Jewish Christians accept this? Will they accept Gentile ministry to themselves? That's what he's worried about. And I wonder how often we American Christians view ourselves as needing input from Christians from other parts of the world. Aren't we the center of the ecclesiastical universe? Aren't we the theological hub of orthodoxy? Aren't we the supreme source of missions giving? I mean, it all starts with America, right? Aren't we the source and the ground of cultural application that should be exported everywhere else around the world? I mean, isn't the whole world supposed to look like the American church? Well, understand, Jerusalem was the mother church. Who were these Gentiles from Macedonia and Achaia who have come along to help us out? Well, you're going to have to accept ministry from the Gentiles. In other words, it really is appropriate to pray for the cross-cultural application of the gospel. It really is appropriate for us to recognize and pray for our reception to gospel ministry from people from other cultures. That can be very, very helpful for us. I've learned a great deal from reading the writings of people from around the world. I call it the horizontal axis. When you go to interpret the Bible, all right, think of two axes. You've got the, you've got the vertical axis, which enables you to connect with church history and what others have said, but there's a horizontal axis. Listen to voices from around the world when they comment on the text. We really can be very receptive to other voices in helping us understand the gospel. And then thirdly, in verse 32, Paul says this, pray that I will be allowed to make a joyful visit to Rome. That's his request, a joyful visit to Rome. Now, did you notice how Paul both plans to come to Rome and at the same time ask prayer that those plans would actually come to fruition? What is the relationship between the plans that we make and the plans that we pray for? Well, here's the answer. 
Prayer is the means by which we submit our plans to the will of God. That's biblical prayer. Taking your plans and submitting them to the will of God. Notice how verse 32 begins. So that by God's will. Paul hopes that what he desires is indeed part of God's will. I want this, but I submit this to the will of God. This is really critical. There's absolutely no problem with making plans, whether ministry plans or otherwise. In fact, you cannot go through life without future planning. But prayer submits those plans to God's will. Now keep a finger here and turn back to Romans 1 very quickly. Let's just recall how this book began. Paul is going to say something very similar in Romans 1. In Romans 1, Paul tells the Romans that he greatly desires to come to Rome. Same thing he says in chapter 15. But once again, observe how he subordinates his desires to the will of God. Verse 9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of the Son. Notice this, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. He really loves these Roman believers, asking that somehow by God's will, notice that, somehow by God's will. I don't know what that looks like yet. But somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Now, Romans 15 says he fulfilled his ministry from Jerusalem to Illyricum. At long last, maybe I can get to Rome. And Paul says in verse 11, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. This is why he wants to come. I want to impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. So here's Paul's desire. My great desire is to come to Rome and to engage in ministry to support you all. And somehow, by God's will, I pray this will happen. So Paul really wants to go to Rome. And again, there's nothing inappropriate about this desire. But he nevertheless takes this desire and submits it, subordinates it to the will of God. The will of God trumps our desires. In fact, if Jesus himself said, not my will, but yours be done, and Paul twice speaks of praying according to God's will, uh, isn't that instructive for us? Prayer aligns our desires with the perfect will of God. Prayer is an expression of the submission of my desires to God's will. So let's summarize. Paul requested prayer for three things. Number one, pray that Paul may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea. Number two, pray that Paul's service will be accepted by the saints in Jerusalem. And number three, pray that God will allow Paul to make a joyful visit to Rome. So did God answer these prayers? And if so, are God's answers instructive for us? Let's take a look. Let's begin with the middle request. Did the saints in Jerusalem receive Paul's service? Did they receive his offering? 
And in this case, we do not know for certain. So I want to deal with this very quickly, and then we'll move on to the other two. The only mention that we have of it is a record of what Paul later said to Felix when he was on trial. Luke records in Acts 24 and verse 17, Paul's words, Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. Now it's probable based on that statement that the offering was in fact received. It seems to me that Paul would not have mentioned that he brought alms and presented an offering if in fact the monies were rejected. If in fact that whole matter proved divisive. Paul seemed to have been welcomed when he came to Jerusalem. So we don't actually have a really clear answer, though, to that middle request. Well, then what of the other two? Here they are. Was Paul delivered from unbelievers in Judea? And did Paul make a joyful visit to Rome? All right, can we all do this? Can we all just answer those two questions in your minds right now? Here they, all get, here they are again. Was Paul delivered from unbelievers in Judea? And did Paul make a joyful visit to Rome? He actually used the word restful also. So formulate in your mind an answer to those questions. And can you give a simple yes or a simple no? Well, Paul was not killed in Judea. And Paul did come to Rome. So we really can't say no. I mean, God did not answer Paul's prayers. But I suspect that we are a little bit hesitant to say yes. God answered those prayers. Was he delivered from unbelievers, and did he make a joyful visit to Rome? Let's go investigate. Let's turn to Acts chapter 21 and actually see what happened. Acts 21. What happened to Paul? In Acts 21, we learn of Paul completing the final leg of his journey back to Jerusalem. In Acts 21 and verse 4 is ominous. At Tyre, the believers told Paul through the Spirit not to go on to Jerusalem. And in verses 10 and 11, the prophet Agabus warned him also. But in verse 17, Paul arrived in Jerusalem and he was warmly received. The text reads, when we had come to Jerusalem... The brothers received us gladly, which again is probably an indication the offering was also received. But notice what, ha what happened after a week. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. 
Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Now at this point, it would seem that Paul has not been delivered from unbelievers at all. Here's a lynch mob ready to kill him. And this mob reminds us of the hostile crowd who persuaded Pilate to nail Jesus to a cross. So initially, it would seem the answer to Paul's prayer request is no, he was not delivered. Then again, just keep reading and notice what happens when the tribune shows up. Verse 32, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Now pause right there and observe that Paul was persecuted. He was beaten in Jerusalem. If they stopped the beating, that meant he was getting beaten. So God did not deliver Paul from a beating but was he killed? Well, keep reading. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Well, what do we make of that? Was Paul delivered? Well, remember what happened to Jesus when the crowd cried, away with him. What happened? Jesus was crucified. So Paul does escape Jesus' fate. Then again, Paul is now a prisoner. And Paul will remain a prisoner all the way to Rome. Paul will remain a prisoner all the way through to the end of the book. So, was Paul delivered from unbelievers in Judea? This is one of three occasions when Paul was rescued from a lynch mob. Turn forward to Acts 22 and verse 22 now. Paul was granted by the tribune an opportunity to tell his story to the people in the Hebrew language. Things were going well enough until Paul mentioned his ministry among the Gentiles. And verse 22 tells us what happened next. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought to the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, 
Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought the citizenship for a large sum, Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him, which was, of course, illegal in those days. Well, would you say that Paul was delivered? I'd say yes. He was delivered from martyrdom and also from a flogging. God delivered him. Then again, Paul remained a prisoner. And there's actually no way that he can be released. I mean, there's an angry mob out there waiting to destroy him. But then again, he will be delivered a third time. And we know about this by skipping ahead to chapter 23. And here we discover a third attempt on Paul's life. Acts 23 and verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. Now just imagine that. Imagine you got more than 40 people and they have refused to eat until they have drawn your blood. This is incredible opposition. And isn't this precisely the kind of situation that Paul asked the Romans to pray about? Pray that I may be delivered from unbelievers in Jerusalem, in Judea. So think of it. Was it possible you have Roman Christians and they're over there in Rome and they are praying even while Paul is in prison, even while this conspiracy is being hatched, they are praying, God, would you deliver Paul? Would you deliver Paul from this wicked conspiracy that it's working, that's working its way through Jerusalem? So will God answer the prayer of those Romans? Well, the answer comes about by way of a young man and a small army. Let's take the time to read what happened, beginning with verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. This is Paul's nephew. So we went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So we took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. 
So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. And notice what happened next. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea, Caesarea at the third hour of the night. This is really astonishing. 200 soldiers? 70 cavalrymen? 200 spearmen? This is a small army collecting together to save Paul. And Caesarea, friends, is well north of Judea. This small army is going to deliver Paul right up north to Caesarea. So would you say that Paul was delivered from unbelievers in Judea? Absolutely, and in quite a dramatic way too. Friends, this is the kind of dramatic, extraordinary answer to prayer that we like to celebrate in Christian circles. I mean, it's the kind of thing that you get in the phone, you start calling around and telling people the testimony goes on and on. I mean, God sent a whole army to deliver this man. So, Again, the answer to Paul's prayer to be delivered from unbelievers in Judea has to be a yes. It really can't be a no. But still, it's a qualified yes. Don't forget that Paul entered Judea a free man, and he left a prisoner. And don't overlook Acts 24 and verse 27 which tells us what happened to Paul in Caesarea. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. More than two years in prison in Caesarea. Well, is that how God delivers you from unbelievers in Judea? Is that how you do it, God? More than two years in prison? Now think about all the inconveniences that we have supposedly faced over the last year of coronavirus. We have become very restless. I was thinking about that this week as I was thinking about Paul in prison for two years. All right, would you rather spend two years or more in a Roman prison, all right, or dealing for coronavirus for a year? I mean, we just get so restless. And imagine Paul for two years. He's in this prison. We really are not suffering compared to Paul. So again, the answer to the first question is a qualified yes God delivered Paul from unbelievers, but he did so by way of making him a prisoner and leaving him in prison for more than two years. And what about the third request? Did Paul make a joyful visit to Rome? Well, certainly Paul made it to Rome eventually. And in fact, if you just glance back at Acts 23 and verse 11, the Lord himself comforted Paul with the assurance that he was going to Rome. In fact, immediately before the plot on Paul's life was hatched, we read in verse 11, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. 
That seems a definite yes. Paul, you're going to Rome. God guarantees it. But don't forget what Paul asked the Romans to pray for. Here's what he said, Romans 15, so that by God's will, I may come to you with, what's the word? Joy. And be refreshed in your company. So would you say that Paul's journey to Rome was a joyful experience or even that he was refreshed when he arrived? Paul arrived in Rome about three years later than he anticipated. And a majority of that time was spent in a dank prison cell. And Paul was hounded by the Judaizers and lied about and maligned when he set about to defend his faith in public. And according to Luke, Paul was, here's what Luke said, violently storm-tossed for two weeks out there on a ship. And also, here's what Luke said, deprived of food for a long time. And he was shipwrecked in the heart of the Mediterranean. Now, how grumpy do you get after missing a meal? How about being on board a ship, violently tossed about for two weeks with very little or no food? Like, when will this ever end? You've got to remember, Paul is not probably in the best of health. He spent two years in a prison. This is a horrible way to get to Rome. And only after three months on an island did Paul finally set sail for Rome and turn now to Acts 28, where we learn of Paul's final arrival in Rome. Paul's final arrival. And in verse 16, we read this. And when he came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And the end of verse 20 adds this, I am wearing this chain. So did, did God answer Paul's third request? Did Paul make a joyful visit to Rome? The answer, I think, again, is a qualified yes. Yes, Paul certainly came to Rome, but was it a joyful visit? And that really depends. That really depends on whether or not Paul was consistent with his own statement that he made to the Philippians. Would you turn to Philippians 4? Did Paul make a joyful visit? Well, turn to Philippians 4. Ostensibly, Paul's journey to Rome was anything but joyful. Imprisonment, seasickness, starvation, shipwreck, house arrest, a chain. If that's how you get to Rome, I'd rather stay home. Imagine getting to Rome the way Paul did. But is it possible, is it even possible that that was a joyful visit? And again, it really depends. Was Paul able to put his own situation in perspective and find joy through trial? Look at verse 11. Philippians 4, verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, 
Look at the next four words. For I have learned. I have learned. In whatever situation I am, I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, like two years in prison, two weeks on a ship with no food, facing hunger, and I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now put that in context. You see that on, on, on shirts, you know, athletes go out there, I can do all things, I can bench press in Christ's name. It's not what it's talking about, friends. All right, he's talking about real opposition here. God did indeed answer Paul's request to come to Rome. But perhaps along the way, we don't know, God had to come along and just adjust Paul's spirit to make him learn. He had to be taught how to find joy, how to find refreshing in the middle of opposition, in a prison, shipwrecked on an island. Paul, you are going to have to learn to find joy where? In the storm, in the prison, in the hunger, in every circumstance. That's what you have to learn. And that's what happens when you submit your request to God in prayer. You submit those requests to God's will. Are you willing to learn once you've submitted those requests? So what does this all mean for us? Let me give us two points of application and I'll be done. First of all, allow our desires to bend to God's will and not the other way around. God did indeed answer Paul's prayers. He was delivered from unbelievers in Judea, but the circumstances doubtless were not those Paul would have chosen. Paul was indeed brought to Rome, but the circumstances doubtless were not those Paul desired. Paul had to submit his desires for joy and refreshing to the perfect will of God. And that will forced Paul to think in categories like those he outlined here in Philippians 4. Learn joy through being brought low. Learn to be refreshed by becoming content with little. Find joy in Christ despite facing hunger and need. Find joy and refreshing through Him who strengthens me. That's the source. Through Him who strengthens me. When you're weak, you find joy in the one who strengthens you. You don't find the joy in the circumstances. So how do we respond when God answers our prayers, but not quite the way that we anticipated? Well, what did Paul do? Recall back in Romans 1 what Paul actually prayed for. He said, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you, and he said this, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. This is what Paul really wanted. Paul wanted to get to Rome to exercise a spiritual gift and to strengthen the church. And Paul certainly made it to Rome through trials and circumstances that he would not have chosen. But what did Paul do when he arrived under house arrest? 
Well, when you read the last chapter of Acts, here's what Paul is doing. He's going right on with his calling. He goes right on serving Christ and his kingdom. He goes right on imparting his spiritual gift and strengthening the church just as God had called him to do. And Acts concludes, Paul welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And that leads us to our second application. Here again is the first one. Allow our desires to bend to God's will and not the other way around. Secondly, go right on serving the Lord when God doesn't answer your prayers exactly the way you anticipated. This is what Paul did. The prayers didn't get answered exactly like he thought or imagined or desired. What does he do? He just goes right on serving the Lord. Went right on with his purpose in coming to Rome. You've got to move forward with God's calling on your life. You just got to pick yourself up and move on. For Paul, it was a matter of imparting a spiritual gift, whether as a freeman, as a prisoner, as a storm-tossed passenger, or chained to a guard. Didn't matter. I'm just going to go right on doing what God has called me to do. So our duty is to follow the will of God. Even when the circumstances you prayed about don't perfectly align with your desires. Just go right on serving the Lord. Pastor Fant gave us a perfect example on Wednesday night. In fact, as soon as he started talking, this is perfect. This is exactly what Paul was talking about. You just go on, you just carry on, you just carry on with God's calling in your life, even when God doesn't exactly answer your prayer for physical healing exactly the way you hoped or thought he would. Just go on. You prayed that God would allow you to raise your children for his glory, and your spouse just walked out on you. Well, what do you do? You go right on raising your children for God's glory despite the shipwrecks of life. You prayed that God would allow you to serve the body of Christ into your retirement years. And your spouse is suddenly ill and confined to the home like Paul under house arrest. What do you do? Well, you just go right on serving the body of Christ by caring for the body of your spouse. You serve the Lord faithfully in Africa like the Loshers, and suddenly you are driven from your home by circumstances you would not have chosen. What do you do? You just, you just go right on serving the new people that God has placed in your path. I was thinking about the Loshers this week. You know, they were home here for a year and a half, and I mean, as soon as they were here, they're ministering to people. All over the place, they're ministering to people. If we can't do it in Africa, we'll do it here, and now we'll do it in France. You just go right on with God's calling even if he doesn't answer the prayers exactly the way you thought he should. You plan to serve God in your vocation, but the pandemic just changed everything. You had to switch jobs or relocate or work more from home. Well, what do you do? You just go right on serving the Lord in creative new ways. You pray that all your children would confess Christ under your tutelage in your home. But now they're in their 20s and 30s, and 40s, and they're still lost. What do you do? You just go right on praying for your kids and leaving the timing to God. 
How often do you suppose Paul had to just readjust to God's timing? I thought you were going to do it now. No, three years from now, Paul. Do you suppose that when he wrote to the Romans of his desire to come, he ever imagined that it would take him some three years to get there? Probably not. God doesn't operate on our time scale. So friends, in conclusion, in prayer, we submit our plans and our dreams and our ambitions and our desires to God. And so often as Christians, we glibly claim, oh, I prayed about it. I prayed about it as if, oh, I prayed about it. I can just go on doing what I want to do. That's not true prayer. Prayer is not some sort of talisman that just guarantees us that we can just go on and do what we want to do. There's a lot of pious talk like that. I'll do what I want to do because I prayed about it and just go on with life. That's not serious prayer. Prayer submits your desires to God, your desires to God. And like your ruthless high school English teacher, we let God just edit those prayers line by line by line and hand them back to us and we submit to all of his corrections and we go right on serving him. Shall we pray? Father, I pray that you would indeed help us to pray in submission to your will. Lord, I've identified things this morning that people in our congregation actually face real trouble. I've identified things this morning, Lord, that our people actually pray for. And Father, we just pray that you would help us all to submit to your will regarding our vocations, our children, our spouses, our physical needs. Lord, I just pray that in all things we would seek your face in prayer and that we would indeed submit to the answers that you deliver. Help us, Lord, not to be manipulative, but honestly, seriously learn to wait on you. And when you give us answers that don't look exactly as we anticipated, we pray, Lord, that you would give us the humility to submit and to embrace your truth. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.